and more and more convinced that for me to survive as a Christian, but for people around me and those who aren't Christian, and for my children to survive in the 21st century, we need to be deep believers. We're, nominalism isn't going to exist in a generation's time. So if we're serious parents or we're serious pastors or we're serious artists, we need to be contributing to God's kingdom by helping build deep believers, to that allow the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. In Christ When you Google hymn writers, names like Fanny Crosby, Isaac Watts, Charles Wesley, William Cowper, John Newton will appear among some of the earliest writers. These hymn writers live between the 1600s to the early 1900s, but there's two other names that will appear in this same Google search considered to be modern hymn writers, Keith and Kristen Getty. Keith and his wife Kristen live between Northern Ireland and Nashville in our great state of Tennessee with their daughters Eliza, Joy, Charlotte, and Grace. Keith Getty joins us now from our Nashville studio. Keith, welcome to Bot Radio Network. It's great to be on your station, and it's great to be back in Tennessee. Came in from Ireland two weeks ago, and we'll be here until June. You wrapped up an interview just a moment ago with the BBC for the past hour. Hopefully, you're not all questioned out. Oh, no, I'm ready to go. <laughs> Those guys are so aggressive, they just get me woken up. Well, what was the most interesting question they asked you? Um, it was a bunch of different things. They, they always try to find the more controversial ends that they can to try and get a trick answer. Well, there's no you know. tricks here. You're in safe territory with Bot Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, you and Kristen, as I mentioned, have been able to join the ranks of some of the world's greatest hymn writers. I mean, how do you get to a place like that? Well, I don't know if we have, and I don't know how we did. So <laughs> I think Stuart Tynan and I uh, started writing hymns together in the year 2001. And I think in some part, the success of our first hymn in Christ Alone has opened doors to have some wonderful opportunities. And we're thankful for that. And we continue to write. That's our life's work. What specific ways do you think that you have sort of reinvented the traditional hymn form? That's kind of what you're noted for. Yeah, I think the hymns were really about the historical idea of teaching your faith or learning your faith through what you sing. Primarily, there are songs of worship to God, but it was also understood that God's people would sing them together, but they would also be songs that helped us learn our faith. And thus, typically, they, they were written in an artistic form that united generations together rather than dividing them. So I guess in that sense, we're a little bit different to the modern worship movement, but in many ways similar and, in, if anything, just a, a complement to what they're doing. You said something key there I think is quite appropriate for the generation we're living in today is you said uniting the generation. And I mean, that's something we seem to be a, a divided people, you know, and we need some uniting. And so basically there are certain hymns that could possibly bring us together. Yeah, I mean, I'm a classic music nerd. Um, I was sitting talking here with my fellow nerd about Vaughn Williams and different things this morning. My wife is a singer-songwriter. She listens to really interesting music. But when we sing with our girls as a family, we choose songs that we can sing together. 
the church family is just an extension of that. The songs that we sing in Sunday should be songs that join us together as generations together. And, and if we're learning our faith, it's important that a lot of the songs we sing are songs that we carry with us through life. So that's crucial to the diet of the worship grammar in our churches on a Sunday morning. Well, Keith, exciting for the Getty music listeners, the way you create songs that teach Christian doctrine, and you fuse those lyrics with genres of traditional, classical, folk, and contemporary music. How do you decide which genre you're going to link? <laughs> I wish it was so idealistic. You know, I listen to a lot of music. I write a lot of music. 99% of it is just junk. And But every so often, you know, Stuart Townend or Kristen will say the immortal words, that melody isn't as bad as the rest. And so, <laughs> so when we get that, you know, you know, it is, it is what it is. But, you know, I've studied broadly in music and I listen widely and my influences are quite eclectic. And in that sense, in that sense, we don't sound like modern worship music because we're just trying to find things that are melodies that generations can sing together and help us learn our faith. Well, it's estimated that between 40 and 50 million people sing in Christ alone in church services each year, a song that you and your writing partners, you mentioned, Stuart Townsend, wrote. Can you give us a little backstory that brought you and Stuart to write this particular hymn? Yeah, I was increasingly frustrated just with, well, I was, I was very excited about being a Christian in the 21st century. We live in the most exciting generation in history to be Christians. There are more Christians in the world. The Bible's in more languages. And the opportunities to reach people and connect with people are extraordinary. But of course, you know, in the worlds of Charles Dickens, we live in the best of times and we live in the worst of times. And so the challenges to Christianity are greater. While it's growing in four and a half continents of the world, the one and a half continents that you and I are from are not seeing overall growth. So there's, there's huge challenges. And I believe to be deep believers, to be sincere deep believers, and for our children to be that, we're going to have to become very deep believers. And part of that is through the songs we sing. And as I looked around, I couldn't find deep songs. And so we, this was the first experiment, which was, let's write a hymn, a creedal hymn that tells the story of Christ and, uh, and what it means and teaches it as we go in the way that Wesley did, in the way that the Psalms did, in the way that the Song of Moses did. And so I give the melody, had something of the idea, and then Stuart Tynan just composed this extraordinary lyric. What an amazing combination. Really wonderful, wonderful. Well, Keith, why don't you take a moment, if you will, and give us some of the backstory of how you got to where you are today. You were born in Northern Ireland, as I mentioned, back in 1974, during a period of civil unrest in your country. What were some of the hardships your family had to endure during that time? You know, in one sense, we really didn't. Um, you know, the, the war was largely a working class war, and my parents were determined that we wouldn't see much of it. So, for example, in the marching season and the festival season, where most of the trouble caused, we would leave the country for a vacation. And my parents were pretty good at that. And also had the privilege of making music. That was, that was the only integrated part of life. So Protestants and Catholics, we got to make music in choirs and orchestras and, and just have a great time together and go and tour together. And so I think at some levels it didn't. I think at other levels, at a surface level, I think you take religion more seriously because it's so divisive. But once you grow up and you change your circumstances, 
then the proof of the pudding is there, whether it's real or not. So I'm very thankful to be from Northern Ireland because the influences of the Presbyterian theology and the Scotch-Irish hymn tradition, married with the beautiful Irish melody and our love for life, is, is so much of what inspires and continues to fire me to write. You know, I had a friend when I was with an organization back in college, Operation Mobilization. I spent some yeah, time yeah. In, in Europe, and there was a guy, Iris Joe Murray. I don't know if you ever met Iris Joe. Iris jo- he played the spoons, and he was incredible. <laughs> really? Yeah. Gosh. He certainly sounds Irish, Yeah, and it's, that's the kind of stupid thing we would do. Well, tell me a little <laughs> bit about your dad. What kind of man was your dad? My dad was a very ordinary job, but but loved church music and a great organist, and piano player, and a music arranger. He introduced me to music. Early memories of writing music in my little manuscript book while he was arranging choir music in his big one, and thinking someday I want a big manuscript book. I want to be good enough that I can get a twelve state of manuscript book. Um, <laughs> so. You know, he did in some ways confine my musical tastes because he was into church music and classical music and that was it. But actually, he actually in the end defined it because our music comes out like somebody who grew up listening to classical music and a combination of, of Handel, hymns and Bill Gaither. And, uh, and so, so you were thankful for that. And in the same way as someone like Mutt Lang is such an extraordinary top 40 radio producer and songwriter because he grew up in working class South Africa where that was all he heard. I think for anybody out there, whether it's Memphis blues or whether it's classical music or whether it's something else, we need to run to our heritage and learn and lean into that. There's far too much church, church music today. Just all sounds the same. And it's so utterly boring. I like what you said about leaning into your heritage because that's what makes us all unique. And there's that different flavor that we can draw from. Of course, in my family, there's not a musical family. I can appreciate fine music, but that family connection there, you keep going back to that. Yeah. I mean, God doesn't do things by chance. So providentially, I was brought up in in south of Belfast uh, to parents who love church music. And, you know, each of us are put in the place we are. And even artistically, we write best at the things that are most passionate to us. And our passions are often tied directly or indirectly to our heritage. And so it was natural that even though I wrote theater music and earned more money as an orchestrator in my 20s, you know, that actually my passion for hymns and hearing people sing hymns went so incredibly deep, partly partly because of my heritage and and more significant part because of deep faith. But that resonance of growing up and Sunday evenings sing songs and church choir, Handel's Messiah, and all that kind of stuff, you know, just goes deeper. And I, and, I, and I think all of us need to think a little bit more about that and a little bit less about trying to be original by sounding like everybody else. That's a great word there, Keith. When did Christ become a necessary reality to you? I mean, you grew up in a home that were Christian, but I mean, there had to be a place in time when you realized you had to possess the faith yourself. Yeah, I, I don't remember a time I wasn't a Christian, to be honest. I remember making decisions and all that kind of stuff. But but faith was pretty strong with me from the start. University definitely had a few temptations and thoughts other directions. But by the end of it, I was a stronger Christian than when I went. And, and more and more convinced 
that for me to survive as a Christian, but for people around me and those who aren't Christian, and for my children to survive in the 21st century, we need to be deep believers. We're, nominalism isn't going to exist in a generation's time. So if we're serious parents or we're serious pastors or we're serious artists, we need to be contributing to God's kingdom by helping build deep believers, to that allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And that's definitely from the word there. Well, how and where did you meet Kristen? And was there a, a special occasion or what was the circumstances where you met? Oh, it was just bad luck on her part. Um, it, <laughs> her uncle, her uncle John Lennox, you may know of him, Professor John Lennox at, uh, in Oxford. He famously debated Richard Dawkins uh, in Alabama, actually, and then in Oxford and in the Edinburgh Festival. He helped me with faith, extraordinary gentleman, and then said, would you mind meeting my niece? And I said, sure, whatever. Send her around, you know, <laughs> listen to her make music. And then I met her, and she was a good deal more attractive than I was expecting and a good deal more talented than I was expecting. So she wouldn't date me for years. So I had to, like, to make things up, like saying I needed, I need someone to sing demos and all this kind of thing. And so it took her a long time. Behind. What was the convincing point? How did you break the ice? I, I think I think I just I think he just wore her down. She was just like, I'm sick of this. You know what I mean? Maybe if I date him for a while, I can you know get rid of him again. And so, but but no. So we got married 159 months ago, and we're having a great time. How do you feel that Kristen compliments you most, Keith? She's a nice person. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. No, she, uh, you know, it's interesting you ask that question because we've been touring in America for 12 years. And one of the genuine sadnesses that I have lived with is meeting people who are passionate about their ministry or their life or about something, but aren't as passionate about their marriage. Or when you meet their wife, it's it's clear that she's not really as passionate. So I think the most important thing you do is love one another and love the Lord and love one another because, you know, she is the biggest influence on my life. She is, she is what the person who really affects how I think about things and, and how, and how both the orthodoxy of faith and the orthopraxy, do you know what I mean? She actually influences how I live my life. I could fool just about anybody if I had to, but I can't fool her. And it's really annoying. Uh, (laughs) But, but at the same time, you know, she actually believes in me more than anybody else because everybody else knows us from a distance or from the music and they draw their own conclusions and usually quite sincerely. But she actually knows that despite all my weaknesses and failures that I actually want to please the Lord. So that that is still the most important thing in our yes. lives. You know, we, we, we text each other our prayers every morning just as a habit. And even if it's a short prayer, I still force myself to do it because it's it's important to say that that praying to the Lord and praying for you are more important than anything I will do today. And we try to, you know, just protect it and enjoy it as much as possible. So I don't know if that's the answer you want. No, exactly what we wanted, because that is such a rich, you're so right in the relationship with our spouses. My wife and I have been married for 32 years now. It sounds like some of the qualities you were describing of Kristen, I thought, well, I'm married to her sister, you know, because my wife does the same thing for me. And I'm so grateful. Well, you've got so much happening trying to balance between family life, writing, producing, and managing the Getty Music Company. Where do you find balance? How do you do that? I think, you know, business or balance is the same, def- is the same definition. It's, it's the organization of priorities. 
And so for us, you know, we just constantly have to say, what are our priorities? For me, I've got five priorities in a day and I work through those every day. And it means I miss a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of things could be done better, but that's, that's the choices we've made, you know? And when people say, Joe, I would like to pray for you and your music. I say, well, Pray for me, my wife, my kids, and then if you have extra time, you can pray for our church. And if you're still bored, then pray for a song. But, you know, life comes out of that. You know, if, if any part of that falls apart, then the sincerity and integrity of what we do falls like dominoes. And ultimately, that's the eternal stuff. All the rest of it is, is important. I hope it's important but it's not eternal. You mentioned there's five priorities that you try to concentrate on daily. Could you just kind of give us that list quickly? Oh, professional, surely. Well, I mean, gosh, I don't think I've said this in a radio show, but, but I mean, first thing I do in a working day is, is, is prayer, is making sure I've prayed for every single thing I'm doing and our family and study the Bible. So that's, so now that's, I'm lucky because, because I have control of my schedule. So we, we can do that, but we force that. And then secondly, we're involved in songwriting. So we're essentially saying, how can we write better songs? Thirdly, the, the creative, any creative development. So for example, today, I'm working on the creative development of our Carnegie Christmas show. So I did a couple of calls on the way here on that. And then fourthly, just the the, the vision of, of the Getty Music Company. We've had, It's obviously a family of little companies that have been founded over the last decade. And so I oversee that. And then fifthly, key relationships. So I don't do any implementation of anything. You know, we've got leaders of everything. They're the smart ones. You know, I, I'm, I'm the dreamer. They're the smart ones. We try to, you know, make those the priorities. And there's lots of things we miss. You know, my wife and I have been together every night since we were married. So we miss a lot of opportunities that way too. But it's a way of reorganization priorities. Yeah, we all need to keep that focus. That's so easy to get off that. But having those helps keep us in line, you know. Uh, I was in Nashville recently for the Getty Worship Conference. It, oh, the, really? You were there? I was there, yeah. Oh, thanks for coming. Oh, I, I was Did wonderful. you have a good time? I had a wonderful time. You and I were trying to actually get on schedule for the interview we're doing now. but Were drinking, you the guy that blew me off? No, I, I kept thinking you were rescheduling because things were just happening so fast. There was over 4,000 people there. I can't imagine. This was the first time you planned something like this. What was your thoughts of how all this came together? Um, the conference is just an expansion of the hymns. Our hymns have three goals. One is to let the word of Christ dwell in people richly, deep theology. Secondly, a higher view of art. And thirdly, an even higher view of local churches around the world, to congregational singing. So that's the three things, congregationality, theology, artistry. And so we just, I guess, expanded or, or even exploded those ideas with our friends in a conference to help people think about them. And specifically, obviously, the first year was focused on congregational singing. In the 500th year of Luther, I thought it was really good to let's take the temperature of how our congregation is singing. I think, I think every church needs to do that, but also realize the wider implications. How does it how does singing affect us as individuals? How does it affect the families we're in? How does it affect our churches? And, and how does it affect our witness to our communities? Yeah. Keith, I spoke with several worship leaders when I was there during the break times, maybe in line to get up coffee or something. And I was just so excited to hear their enthusiasm to be there. Many of these worship pastors had traveled to conferences at different times, but they said there was something unique about the way you structured this conference. There was more how-tos and there was more connection. I just got a real good vibe from those I spoke with. Oh, fantastic. Uh, no, it was a wonderful time. And 
next year it's done at Music City Centre in Nashville on the 10th to 12th of September. And would you believe there's almost 2,000 people signed up already. So I believe it. That's pretty exciting. You know, one of the highlights, too, for me being there, I got a chance to visit with Bob Coughlin, who is the uh, head of Sovereign Grace Music. He's a great dude. You know, it's so funny. I didn't put two and two together. I've been in Christian radio since the early 1980s. I used to play Bob's music when he was with Glad on the radio. Later, somebody was talking to me, and he said, that's Bob Coughlin from Glad, and I had to go back and find him. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He could, um, he could sing He Was Made Me Glad. He has made me glad with all kinds of second, secondary meanings. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, another highlight for me being there in Nashville was covering for Bot Radio Network the live coverage of the Getty scene at the historic Grand Old Opry House. Oh, that was, was fun. The broadcast live in Nashville, and it ultimately re-aired across the entire Bot Radio Network. What was your impression of that evening? I got to stand on the stage, the historic stage of the Grand Old Opry House in that center circle where you guys were, but of course not while you were singing, and being backstage and looking through the choir and the stage, and the, the, it was packed from floor to ceiling. There was over, I don't know how many the venue holds, but they were all singing the wonderful hymns, and it was just a great night. It was it was an incredible night. Um, the, you know, the thing, there were so many people made it special. First of all, to the Grand Ole Opry, including backstage and choir and audience, there was over 5,000 people there singing. Now, that was special to be in that room. Chris and I are guest artists at the Grand Ole Opry, and it's never 5,000 Christians singing. So that was a special thing. And for you guys to carry the radio show was extra special. But our governor, of course, Bill Haslam, I texted his wife, I think, the previous week and said, if you guys wanted to come to the conference and welcome people, I, I know that Tuesday you're too busy. Uh, so maybe just turn up on Wednesday and say thank you or read it, read the Bible or something. And he insisted in coming the Monday night, you know, losing several hours of his night to be there to welcome people to the inaugural Sing Conference in Nashville. And it was just so special. Ricky Skaggs turned yes, up. Yes, he did. Member, member of the Grand Ole Opry Hall of Fame because he wanted to welcome everyone to the first night. And uh, David Kim, the concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra, that guest vi- concertmaster of the violin Phil, soloist he did he was... He came in and oh joined, uh, joined our band, played yeah. some Paganini, and it was incredible. So it was a real special night. Kristen and I just... We're so thrilled. You should be. And I'm looking forward to next year. Bot Radio Network listeners be reminded of that. Keith, we talked about early hymn writers at the opening of our program, and often their hymns were written under great trials and personal struggles. Are there particular dark times in your life that you feel that have helped to mold a particular song that you've written? Well, I think any hymn we write, we're trying to help connect the truth of God to people's lives. So there's a part of it is always going to be fired by our own passions, our own frustrations, and our own struggles. That said, I don't want to pretend for a moment that I have suffered like some of the great hymn writers. Maybe I will, and maybe this is maybe that will be part of the testing of my life. And I and I pray that if it is, that God will give me extra grace because I'm not sure how I'd cope. But um, no, every song speaks out of personal experience, but ultimately is is about the truths of the Lord. You mentioned the Getty's Iris Christmas Show, which you originated back in 2011. You've done performances at Carnegie Hall as well as 
top concert venues, including John F. Kennedy Center and Atlanta's Fox Theater. I know that Kristen is pregnant with yet another wonderful Getty child right now. It's a girl. It is a girl. A fourth girl. A fourth girl. <laughs> and they want a dog, which is probably going to be a girl, too. Uh, so you're, All I wanted was male company. You're out any voting. Kind. I'm not even on the vote. I don't qualify to vote. Hey, Keith, I've been told that you have quite a rare collection of hymn books. Is there any interesting stories behind how you were able to obtain some of these books? You know, most of my hymn books were a gift from the late Chip Stam, who was a hymnologist. And uh, his collection started because John and Betty Stam, John Stam would have been his great uncle. His sister, you know, John Stam, they were, they were martyrs in China in the 30s. His sister started a collection in his memory, and then it was passed on to Chip. And then, of course, he handed them to us. And one of the things we've done, of course, is the Facing a Task Unfinished Project, which was a hymn written calling people to China. Uh, and one of Houghton's hymns, uh, Thou Who Was Rich Blown Under Splendor, was actually written after the Stam's death. So it's been a wonderful thing to feel that we can be part of that line of succession and help pass on these truths that were you know, taken out of the blood of martyrs in a sense. So yes. it's a huge um uh, I think inspiration, if not challenge, if not undertaking, to make sure we're writing hymns that are firing the next uh, generation with the necessity of the gospel and the necessity to tell other people. Yes. Well, Keith, as we uh, are wrapping up our program, how can we keep up with your family news, concert schedule, and any new music releases as they become available? Oh, uh, gettymusic.com. I, I think we have a Facebook thing, too. I, I don't do Facebook, but we, don't, we do Facebook. We're on Facebook as, as well. We sure would appreciate your prayers if you and your church wanted to do that. And we'd love to meet you if you turn up to a concert. Well, is there any new projects you're working on right now that you're trying to meet a deadline with a publisher or you're trying to get some, some new hymns? No, we're, we're just so excited about the Sing Book. You know, it's a, I think it's a chance for families, for churches, to look at their congregational singing and really engage in that. So we're excited about people buying it, but buying it for their churches, for their worship teams, their choirs, and their leadership, and to really focus on this, and even to use it as a family. And so that's the main excitement. And then obviously Sing Next Year has got is influenced by the Psalms a little bit. So we're working on a thing which will be released at the Sing Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Keith Getty, thank you so much for joining Bot Radio Network. Thank you for what you do for Christ's kingdom to cause our hearts to focus on Christ, to worship Him, to bring our families together and our congregations. Thank you for being our guest today. Well, on behalf of Getty Music, we want to thank Bot Network for doing all of those things so wonderfully well for so much longer than we have. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.